the millennials. With Yasin Kipi. Igniting the youth. just needs to slow down. Everything's going so fast, whether it's social media, whether it's our news cycles, that I feel like we've kind of lost sometimes the purpose of what we're trying to achieve, whether it's communication, whether it's relationships, whether it's reaching a destination. And the fact that even in, in our haste to be somewhere, we don't enjoy the journey anymore. We just It's all about the next fix, the next instant gratification, filling up your diary. I'm, and I'm guilty of this as much as the next person. I think there's a, there's a merit and a almost a guilty desire to sometimes get off the grid for so many of us because we're overwhelmed with how many demands we place on ourselves because we want to get ahead. Um, we want to be not just current and up to date with the latest gadget and technology, but of what we think society expects for us. And I think we need to shift the paradigm of what we expect for ourselves and not what others expect from us. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to the voice of the millennials. And uh, that, of course, was the voice of uh, our guest in studio today. It's named Chopra. And uh, we are very. Is Chopra or Chopra? Chopra. Chopra, Chopra right? Yeah. We're very honored and very privileged to uh, have her in studio. And uh, our discussion tonight on the voice of the millennials um, is, of course, about culture, you know, religion, and um, really what her forte is. And she is an internationally acclaimed uh, cross cultural consultant. It's named Chopra. Delivers workshops on diversity, identity, and racism to varied varied uh, audiences from Supreme Court judges, uh, of course, to teachers as well. Rated in the top 10 thinkers of Australian magazines emerging 100 leaders of 2009, a curator at the Immigration Museum in Melbourne, and she has previously received the Australian Muslim Achievement Awards for Women for Women of the Year. And uh, of course, you can you can check her out online in terms of her writings and uh, her contributions um, to the interweb and to the various uh, followers uh, of, of of her work online. Uh, Tasneem.com.au. Tasneem is spelled T-A-S-N-E-E-M. But uh, welcome to Voice of the Nails. Welcome to Voice of the Cam. Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum salam. Thank you for having me. And uh, I, I must say, uh, just researching um, what you've done is, is, de- is definitely inspiring, especially for the uh, younger generation. Um, you've been in Cape Town now for this past um, few days, and uh, it's your first time to Cape Town. It's my it? first time to South Africa. It's amazing. Yeah. First time to South Africa. What's your impressions? It's beautiful. It's a very, mm-hmm. it's a very beyond being a very pretty town. It's got a beautiful vibe about it. People are very laid back, <laughs> which is great when you're on holiday. I don't know how I feel okay. about working here, but on holiday, why? Well, everyone's chilled. Um, there's yeah. just a lovely energy and vibe about it. Well, I mean, some people are saying that's why we have the water crisis, because this, <laughs> the government is kind of laid back. But of course, you're from Australia, mm. and uh, Australia is um, you know, in one corner of the world, if you, if you think um, the, the earth is flat. But um, tell us about... Or the top of the world if you invert it. Right. It's relative. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, tell us about, you know, the current situation, uh, you know, socially and politically in Australia. And just your context, just um, briefly what your context is and where you come from. Well, I can only speak from the personal. So yeah. I think the context is that Australia is a very diverse community. It's a mm-hmm. diverse population generally in Victoria where I'm from the state mm-hmm. um, I'm based in Melbourne which is the capital city now if you compare Melbourne to other capital cities it is comparatively more cosmopolitan 
more progressive in terms of its multiculturalism and its view and outlook. But that doesn't always translate to actual better outcomes on the ground. So I think there's a lot of intention there. Um, there are certain pathways which have been great in terms of, you know, acknowledging diversity of communities and culture mm-hmm. and recognition of individuals from cultures so that we're seeing them represented on leadership levels. Yeah. But in terms of do we still have an underclass of refugees? Yes. Do we still have, you know, a, a low socioeconomic community that's predominantly migrant-based? Yes. So is there still a lot of room and reparation to be made? Yes, particularly when we speak about the first peoples or the, the indigenous Australians who are the oldest living culture in the world that still remain the most marginalised and underprivileged community in our country. Well, I mean, let's g- g- get straight into that. How difficult was it for you to swallow um, the fact that Donald Trump became the president of the U.S.? This entire, um, uh, you know, um, um, manifestation of the far right and, and this post-truth era of emotional politics. Um, do you think multiculturalism is um, on the back foot or is it still progressing? Look, I think it is still progressing, but I think it's like a classic case of one step forward, ten steps backwards. Yeah. And I think the success, if that's mm-hmm. the right word to use of someone like Trump, is the manifestation of the rise of the right. Yeah. We have you know, Marine Le Pen and her, arch- her movement mm. in France, yeah. which although not successful, showed that those kind of right-wing views and policies have a lot of traction. We've seen the Brexit movement in the UK and we're seeing what that's represented. And of course, you know, 45 in America yeah. and the views that he's espoused. We're seeing legitimacy of us and them. And this constant, so it's okay to pillarize a minority community because um, they're taking our jobs or they don't hold the same values. There's a very hollow mentality and analysis to this that if, when you probe it deeper, you actually find people are just scared of what they don't know. And, yeah, ignorance. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we're always looking for answers to these difficult questions of representation in order to really uh, progress in, in, in the in the sense of multiculturalism and also to really um, lift the standards of the, um, the, the lives of immigrants in, in our countries. Because even in South Africa, we have a plethora of different people coming from Somalia, etc., and other mm-hmm. parts of the world. And um, tell us about Australia and some of the you know great people. And you've, you're one of them. And uh, I also no, know... I also I'm know just one of the louder ones, <laughs> I also know um, Walid Ali, who's a TV host, and, and he is quite amazing mm. as well. Tell us about Australia and really that the Muslim voice in Australia at the moment. It's present and it's there, but it's only yeah. ever heard when it's convenient. So uh-huh. I was speaking to um, someone earlier today about the fact that, you know, Muslims as a community, yeah, we do have success. We do have milestones and achievements and those that have done amazing things. But often when that success is achieved, you either regarded as the Muslim exception, mm-hmm. like or you're not like the others, yeah, yeah, or yeah. Mm-hmm. you're not acknowledged at all, your faith is irrelevant to what you've achieved. Mm-hmm. And sport is one of those classic vehicles where successful Muslim sports stars are, you know, they're lauded and uh, appreciated as, as, as great in Usman Khwaja and some um, footballers, etc. that we have. They are recognized, but when you want to acknowledge their faith as a contributor to what they've done, admittedly it's not always related, but it's never acknowledged by those, the naysayers and those who, who are Islamophobes in the world. Um, having said that, it, when something obviously goes wrong, when there's any incident of crime or malaise that affects the community, the first thing people point out is, oh, well, it's the Muslim thing. That's what they do, isn't it? Yeah. 
So it's it's a very convenient analysis and a lens that privileges those in power. We're talking to Tasneem Chopra, an internationally acclaimed cross-cultural consultant. Just before we take the ad break, you've been in Cape Town now for a few days and I, I just read your uh, blog post this morning, Learnings from Apartheid in Humanity. I'm just going to read it. Um, the harrowing, confronting and unmistakable travesty of apartheid is detailed in the chronology of Cape Town's District 6 through the stories and artifacts of its earlier vibrant community of freed slaves, merchants, artisans, laborers and immigrants. The first to be forced, forced out were black South Africans, of course, under the Group Areas Act of 1950. Uh, more than 60,000 people were forcibly removed, as we know. And then, of course, you at the District 6 Museum, established in 1994, which preserves these memories and experiences of forced removals and is a telling example of white privilege. On this day, it is fitting we are reminded that in Australia, it, ha- it always has been and always will be Aboriginal land. Now, of course, um, many lessons to be learned in South Africa, mm. But do you have any lessons for us as South Africans from from your perspective in Australia? I wish I could say that we, you know, look at us, we're doing it right, but we're not. I mean, the fact that this is Australia Day, on um, 26th of January uh-huh. 2018, um, is still being celebrated in this in Australia as a country, as a time of, you know, recognising how wonderful the country is. It's it's being done at a, at the expense of the respect and dignity of the First Nations people who see that day as marking invasion and genocide. Mm. And that's that is an un, that's an unmistakable and undeniable truth that they've had to endure. This is the oldest living culture in the world, mm. sixty thousand years old in tradition and contribution. Yet, to want to recognise the day that marks the genocide as a national holiday, mm. it really does. I mean, it's, it it sparks a lot of outrage in a lot of Australians. Um, in Melbourne alone, there was a rally on Australia Day protesting this day, and the argument and demand for the government to change the date of this day has been increasing in fervor for the last several years to the extent that we have local government in this country in australia mm-hmm. who have decided quite controversially to not hold australian day ceremonies of citizenship so normally on australia day what has happened in the past is that's the day when citizenship ceremonies are held and people who are taking citizenship get it on that day it's become yeah. a tradition mm-hmm. so just last year, in the, in the months leading up towards the end of the year, three local councils in Victoria alone basically have gone on record and said they are not going to use that day because they have the, they have the um, you know, I guess the authority within their own local council to choose when the date is. They said we're not doing it on that day out of respect of the First Peoples. Mm-hmm. Now, this to me is a sign of, okay, things are slowly changing. Yeah. You know, in very, very, very slowly because they're recognising the offence that it causes. But at a federal level, we're still not seeing those. In terms of indicators of life expectancy, Indigenous communities still have the lowest. In terms of health, in terms of infant mortality rate, in terms of incarceration, in terms of abuse and violence that women are experiencing in in family violence, they still have the highest markers nationally. And that's an indictment on the way the government leads. There needs to be a massive structural reform which needs to be headed by the Indigenous people, and there isn't that. We're constantly seeing people decide what's best for those communities without actually engaging those communities in the decision making. So I would like to think, and I'm still learning, to see that the same situation in South Africa. If there are markers of difference and indicators of life expectancy that are different between the African indigenous communities and the mainstream, who's making the decisions to turn them around? Yeah. I mean, one of your followers on Facebook said uh, you'd be a great politician. Oh, Would God, you ever no. consider that? Absolutely. No, no, no. <laughs> no I, I did work in government for about... 
I think it's two and a half to three years, and yep. I worked for a member of parliament. And I'm glad that I did because that experience demonstrated to me unequivocally that this is not the life that I want to lead. Well, hopefully we can learn a bit more about you just after this break. You're listening to The Voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM Studio. So, to Lel Fiat. Voice of the Millennials. With Yasin Kipi. Igniting the youth. Welcome back to the Voice of the Cape, uh, Voice of the Millennials. You're listening to me, Yasin Kepi, and we continue this interesting discussion on uh, very important uh, issues with, uh, of course, Tasneem Chopra, internationally acclaimed cross-cultural consultant. Um, but also in studio, we have one of our colleagues, and the first time on on um, presenting with me uh, on the show, of course, Warda Wilkinson. Assalamualaikum to you, Warda. Thank you, Thank you for having me. It's it's definitely a, 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 a joyful experience for us all because you've always been in the background, but now you. Um, um, you know, in the forefront, um, you have um, some. <laughs> but he's making jokes with me on the technician side. Um, uh, you have some questions, of course, for Tasnima. Go ahead. Oh well, basically, Tasnima. Now, in the break, we were speaking about the uh, inequality and mm-hmm. how these similarities, which we as this nation, we as South Africa nation, and the indigenous uh, Australian people of say, are facing. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so maybe if you can enlighten us on. All of that, like so, yeah. So there, I mean, I, I spoke earlier about the fact that the indicators for Indigenous Australians are still quite high when you look at the benchmark for, you know, those who are incarcerated, uh, violence against women, um, education standards, and li- you know, life expectancy in general, and how do you go about remedying these issues? They're quite structural, deep issues. And is there political will to actually change that? And in Australia, I commented that we have a long way to go. We have a long way to go. And there is a progressive movement that acknowledges that and seeks to rectify that. But it's not exactly changing into outcomes for communities yet. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that's uh, something that we really need to put into practice. Um, how, how do you... You know, what is your advice to young people who are listening in order to actually, you know, practically um, contribute towards, you know, uh, uh, making that contribution um, in terms of um, the spheres that they should be in? Mm. I'm often asked that question, as particularly at university aged and level young people. And my, my advice is consistent. It is, you know, if you see an injustice, act on it. And yeah. whether that's whether you feel it, whether you actually join a movement, whether you um, agitate for change in ways that are obviously legal, but still persistent, I think is important. Just having an opinion about something isn't always enough, though. You need to do something with that. <coughs> yes, yeah. but the biggest question obviously would be in terms of the Muslim community, mm-hmm. and especially in a modern world, how do you, as dominantly a Muslim woman, how do you stand out for change? How do you raise your voice without being labelled and oftentimes that is a big problem for our mm. especially the youth I think it's important to take up the opportunities and platforms when you get them because if you don't and my experience as a, as a I guess as an Australian Muslim woman is if I don't speak up to articulate what I see as an injustice facing my community or women in general that platform will be basically uh, engineered or taken over by, and I hate to say this, Muslim men yeah. or mm-hmm. non-Muslim women who are trying to free me. You know, and I don't need to be emancipated. I just need a microphone and I just need the opportunity to actually say what's going on. Mm-hmm. So take them. If you get an opportunity, grab it. Don't just or don't wait around. And sometimes you have to make your opportunities. You have to take them because if you don't, someone else will appropriate it for you. 
And I think, um, you know, many, uh, even male Muslim scholars will agree with the fact that, um, you know, uh, these fears, especially in our Islamic institutions, have been dominated by Muslim males. Mm -hmm. And um, there needs to be some change. And we actually do need both women activists and women scholars to be heard, especially as an antidote to the religious distortion that we we find out there, you know, Mm -hmm. these um, ISIS-type like regimes. And, uh, you know, what I think is that we really have no other option but to reclaim that uh, prophetic message, which is to bring women to the table, which is the, um, it's like a, it's like a, you know, a joke when they say women should be in the house, but they should also be women should be in the house and senate, not in the yeah. house at home, right? Yes. <laughs> in yeah. terms of in terms of leadership. I, one of my first tweets when I when I started on Twitter was that uh, um, women deserve. What did I say? I said um, women deserve a seat at the table, which yep. they usually expected only to sit. Uh-huh. Right, so we're not here to bring food. We're here to be at the table Absolutely. and have a voice and be part of a conversation that's about us. I mean, why be constantly on the outside and waiting politely for someone to let us come in? It's not that's not how it works. It certainly doesn't work that way for men. Um, if women are taking a very strong and articulate and certain stand about what's important to them, they should be heard, not dismissed for being loud and annoying. They need to be dismissed for being authentically representing the, the issues of their community. We know it better than anyone else, so yeah. why not let us lead the charge in how that is discussed? Now, the dominant uh, obviously perception of, of Muslim women in, in the West and among certainly my lecturers at university is that Islam is a backward religion. It's uh, oppressive towards women, um, and of course um, that is viewed from the perspective of the West, but us as Muslims, you understand that Islam in fact um, fights that um, you know, uh, uh, insidious mm-hmm. idea from taking over. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to, of course, you in the forefront and um, you being asked a question by a prominent um, Western secular modern person that um, views Islam in this way, how do you, uh, you know, answer the questions when it comes to um, one of th- one of the things that you're very passionate about, as you say, um, you know, uh, apo- you know, issues that impact upon disadvantaged and 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 um, and minorities. Um, there are many Muslims who identify, and a few Muslims who identify as part of this disadvantaged groups within, you know, our Muslim societies, homosexuals, mm-hmm. for example. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you deal with that as as a Muslim woman? Um, how, what answer can you give to someone who says, "Oh, you're a social activist and you you fight for disadvantaged and minorities, but your religion says otherwise?" Yeah. Okay. So that's that's what I call Islam splaining. Yeah. When people try and explain religion to me, which is my own religion, which is an extension of you know woman splaining and all that man splaining and the rest of it. So I I take that for what it is. I take that as a person's comments made ignorantly, but within the frame of reference of what they know. Um, and I also would also preface that with, you know, they there's this perception that Muslim women are only capable of speaking about the hijab. Like literally, that's all we can speak mm. about. Um, and th- the danger of that ideology is that it, 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 inhib- it prohibits women from speaking broadly on other issues of which we have ample expertise, whether it's environment or politics <coughs> or even sport or health, whatever it is. And it opens up that room to be dominated on all issues about Islam by men or, again, the non-Muslim movement. So it's that we have capacity, we have agency. Yeah. We have ability and intelligence to do that. And mm-hmm. we have female Islamic scholars and mm-hmm. those within our Islamic history who are leaders, who fought wars, who waged battles, who led businesses and Absolutely. movements. Yeah. So, yeah, the evidence is right there. And often some of the greatest barriers 
to us sharing that knowledge and sharing that space is, most, is, un, is sadly the men who want to insist on being gatekeepers of knowledge. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, that's definitely a wake-up call to, to, to all men um, in, in any position of power because especially now in 2017, even though we've known... 18. 20, I mean, uh, sorry, especially as last year, <laughs> 2017, this whole Me Too movement, and of course we should know that. We should have uh, we, we know this from a very long time ago, 1,400 years ago. The Prophet has taught us that. Um, you know, in, in terms of one of the main philosophies of 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 the the, the, the question about um, gender equality in in the West is that um, there is a competition that is being created on the outward, and so one lady dunks a basketball in a hoop, and everyone goes crazy and, and they applaud, um, but um, thousands of men do that every day, hmm. and so that's very interesting. And uh, from an Islamic perspective, what I was taught is that Islam does create a competition, but on the inward. Right, we have biological differences, but inwardly, in fact, and many times, the women are more, uh, actually, more um, uh, at an advantage um, to men because they are more prone to certain emotional tendencies, which is which is a good quality and and, and compassion, for example, mercy, the word um, for womb, for example, which is not the purpose of a lady mm. to have children. That's not the purpose, but it's an innate quality of a lady, and that's from Allah's name, Ar Rahman, and that's very interesting. Um, but what I find is that many of the same Muslims who you know, criticize um, the West has the same philosophy of the West, and they they view Islam as an outward thing. Um, don't you think? Yeah, and I guess that comes. It's it's that's a colonial legacy mm-hmm. that is us, and they you know yeah. want to view us as this different other entity that doesn't fit in with who they are, and there's a necessity to see us as you know needing to be saved or needing to be broken down as something that's. Um, Particularly obscure, they can't they can't reconcile Islam with progress and success, despite our history of you know contributions and inventions and yeah. and legacies. Yes, historic, but also modern day. We have very successful, enterprising, contributing Muslims in the world, in the West, in and under, and otherwise. But again, when we do have those ex- successes, they're always seen as an exception, and it's that exceptionalism that defines the way those Islamophobes want to keep Islam in it, and Muslims in an, in their lane. So I'm all about. Mm not staying in your lane <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in case you hadn't worked that out yeah, don't stay in your and, lane. and yeah because it's it's that's exactly what they want to do keep you i mean and, and we're in south africa mm-hmm. we know what staying in your lane has meant mm-hmm. and you've struggled to fight that so yeah why go back um speaking about that i think in a way is it perhaps because of the fact that they're not distinguishing the difference between culture and religion and therefore, like you said, they're trying to keep you in your lane. Yeah, I think that's part of it too. I think it's also a very patriarchal call as well. We want to make sure that um, we have people where we can control them. And marginalised communities are often at the mercy of stakeholders for funding, for money to exist. And you know, and that kind of privilege makes life very, very difficult. And I've seen that also here in, in South Africa where you know, communities wanted to try and stay in a particular place for as long as they can. But if they're offered enough money, an opportunity, they've got no force but to relocate because they're in, they're in such a tight position. So, and, that's, and that, is a function of, that is a function of colonialism. That is a function of exploitation. And Muslims are no different to any other minority in that community. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, if they're going to be exploited, it's a very, very difficult um, line to tread. What is the Muslim framework of decolonization, in oh, your wow. opinion? Just in terms of uh, the, 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 the point of departure, how, how should we understand that? Because um, there's a lot of ethical questions when it comes to how to 
take back, you know, by any means necessary. And I've been chucked off the bus at university because I, I just wanted to go home. And people say, no, let's come protest with us, you know, against um, colonization. I just wanted to go home because it was iftar, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> what is our point of departure as Muslims in understanding this whole decolonization, um, you know, concept? <laughs> well, that's a That's a very one. tough question. It is a tough question. It's conversations that are important, right? Yeah, look, I think the whole issue of decolonization, where it begins and where it ends, is really dependent on where you see yourself individually in the in the in the struggle so are you going to remain passive and be thrown around with the pawns or is it, it, it comes yep. back down to what i said earlier if you see something wrong you see an injustice then act on it agitate for change be part of the solution because if you don't then you can't complain about the outcome and uh, this is an expression that i heard only recently is that you can't be who you can't see Hmm. So yes. we do need more Muslim leaders in positions of influence and change because then they become role models for the younger generation to actually look up to and think, you know what, there is actually a scope for things to change. I don't have to remain as this voice on the outside all the time. I want to be part of where things, where things are at. Yeah. I want to come out of that lane and be in the central point of changing. So, yeah, in terms of what decol decolonization, it's going to be... It's going to be a ripple effect. But if one person believes that they can't alone make that change, they won't. Mm. But if they believe that collectively we all are a drop in the ocean, mm. well, we can make waves. And we need lots of waves in Cape Town because yeah, of the yeah, drought, no. of course. We're yes. <laughs> um, we talking to Tasneem Chopra, internationally acclaimed cross-cultural consultant from Australia. Definitely very interesting perspectives. Uh, but we'll take a break now. You're listening to The Voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM Syria. So, to Lel Fiat. Voice of the Millennials. millennials, millennials, millennials. With Yasin Kipi. Igniting the youth. Welcome back to Voice of the Millennials, not the voice of the minions, uh, as according to my technician, uh, Faiz David's day. And uh, with myself, Yasin Kipi, and a very interesting. Um, important discussion uh, that we're having uh, with everyone in the in the uh, studio and mostly women of course and uh, women should be uh, making decisions and giving the having their voices heard and uh, of course uh, we also now joined uh, by uh, Fatima Roika a, uh, a UCT student and also a social justice activist right uh, um, Salaam Alaikum to you Fatima now, um, we've been speaking, I don't know if you've been listening, but we've been speaking about um, social justice and uh, the various frameworks which we, with which we have to deal with culture, you know, religion um, and, and gender as well. Um, just in terms of, you know, um, uh, let's, let me just throw this question out. How do each of you deal with um, this whole um, gender classification issue. Gender is a huge issue with the emergence and with the emergence of multiple ways to identify yourself. You can be a man, a woman, you can be agender, genderless, bi-gender, pan-gender, two-spirit, and there's many more. Uh, how do you view this? Um, um, let's start, do you want to start with you, Fatima? Um, I think as a Muslim, obviously, we have to believe that gender roles do exist because Islamically, there is such a thing as gender roles. But I do also believe that people who identify as, you know, non-binary, mm -hmm. oftentimes they're overlooked. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes the human rights are violated. Yeah. And so I think it's important to stand up when human rights are being violated. There's a difference between advocating and there's a difference between protecting. Yeah. So when someone's human rights are being violated, regardless of their sexuality or gender identity, 
as Muslims, we need to stand up for them. But I think as a Muslim, gender is very important because our religion is divided into gender roles. And that plays that plays very much uh, into the narrative of many religious leaders um, who, who, have, who have said that a secular democratic government is often better than a warped religious theocratic state. And that even if a, religious dis- a religion disagrees with certain practices such as you know, homosexuality, for example, in some regards, the rights to security and autonomy of every citizen should be equal. Uh, how do you view this, um, this name? I would agree. Mm-hmm. I would agree. And I think, and the reason I would agree is that I think paramount to all of that is understanding that, you know, human rights for all people and all mm-hmm. individuals to be respected are also core tenets of Islam. Absolutely. So, you know, the respecting each other's, we may not agree with their differences, but in, in terms of the human rights to express yourself, and the sovereignty to be safe and protected by a law and a government to which you know you are beholden as a citizen is, is your is your right and your entitlement and yeah. i i don't i don't see personally a contradiction in that um certainly people do and that's also their right as well yeah. part of democracy is to have those differences and the respectful freedom to practice them absolutely um I think let's just move on to you know one of the you know, your major you know sections and spheres of work as well, which is racism, of course. And I think it would be quite amiss to think that racism no longer exists, even in South Africa, which is you know one of the most um, uh, seemingly non-racial societies after apartheid. But it definitely does still exist, and I think this also ties to our next segment that we'll be talking to uh, Fatima about just after Maghrib, uh, obviously at the passing of the jazz musician Yuma Sekela. Uh, but what happened was when he passed away on Tuesday, um, Mark Fisher, famous South African footballer, posted a photo on Twitter with a random black person and said, that's, that's you, Masakela. And, and now the hashtag Markfish Challenge came where mm-hmm. people are posting photos of random people <laughs> and saying that it's a famous celebrity. Right? <laughs> and so um, my question now is, um, how do you navigate post-truth? I mean, sorry, how, how do you navigate racism um, in, in this post-truth world where emotions and, and um, are still driven, you know, in the forefront? I think it's important to name it. I think people who have the most issue with the word racism tend to be racists, mm-hmm. in my experience. Um, so I, um, I think it should be front and centre, because often it's the elephant in the room, yeah. and the white yes. elephant in the room, actually. Yeah. So, yeah, bring it up, discuss it, and break it down. But let the people who are, you know, often the victims of this racist debate and discussion be part of the conversation. How can you have a meaningful discussion about changing the outcome and, and reality for a minority community of whether it be blacks or whether it be coloreds or whether yep. it be Muslims mm-hmm. without actually engaging them? And well, what are your views? What do you think? How is your experience? And acknowledging that racism is real and that the experiences of racism for that community are real because often they're not. They're dismissed because racists are so quick to defend us. Well, I'm not racist, but... Yeah. Well, that's not what I meant, but it's, 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 that's in your mind. If you feel offended by that, well, then that's not because I'm racist, it's because you're very sensitive, mm. which is an extension of racism. Absolutely. Um, just um, for the last um, few minutes, um, and I know it's very little time in order to speak about this, but I just want to get your perspective on uh, you know the hashtag MeToo movement. And mm-hmm. there's been a lot of Islamic scholars as well who've been put into the um, limelight in terms, or at least in a very bad light, without mentioning names of abusing their power, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, are they, whether they're spiritual leaders or just leaders um, in terms of the outward sense of Sharia, um, they've been accused of certain um, harassment, you know, um, by, um, you know, towards um, many women who've been in their circles learning from them. Um, what do you make of that in terms of what happened, what's happening in the Muslim community, but also the Me Too movement? 
Oh, it's a little issue, isn't it? (laughs) Well, can I just... I think I'd preface this by saying the Me Too movement as it stands today, while definitely needs to be tabled and be agended, has been around for centuries. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It just hasn't, honestly, without being cynical, received the endorsement of successful middle white women who have now come out and talked about it. It's been going on. We've had exploited women workers, you know, in the Middle East, in Europe, and in, you know, we've had slavery. We've had, it's been happening for a very, very long time. So just to get that out front and centre. But it's really an issue of gender-based violence also, isn't it? You, how which is an extension of patriarchy and the misogyny, which has been in existence across all faiths, because not of faith itself, but of the cultural um, often issues within within a community as well. So, yeah, whether it's, you know, like I said, whether it's been women in the West or women in the East, we look at parts of India, for example. Yeah. We look at, the, you know, the Zainab movement as well. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, 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 it has been going on. Um, what is what is different now is that women are feeling definitely more emboldened to speak out because somehow for various reasons it's become a safer place to actually speak out where once upon a time if you spoke out against abuse and gender-based violence immediately a woman was criminalized Mm -hmm. and she was seen as somehow complicit in her own abuse and i think that has shifted and I think uh, also, you know, we, we had uh, someone from Pakistan, Muhammad Faizan, um, who had, um, he started a whole Twitter profile calling, saying, hashtag justice for Zainab. Of course, Zainab Ansari, a seven-year-old girl in uh, Kasur, Kasur in, um, in Pakistan, was, um, you know, raped and, and murdered by a neighbor of hers who was a Qasida reciter. And he had murdered and raped um, a girl before that. He had gone to jail and bailed out. This really represents the justice system, the terrible nature of the justice system in Pakistan. Um, that's an example of, of this, um, and perhaps if you can address, um, you know, how we should view that as well, and and what we should be doing. My other question is, do you think, you know, as a Muslim and also, but often we 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 don't want to to call out people, but do you, do you think people should be called out by name? This person did that, you know, he should or she should be exposed. Look, I think it's a case by case basis. Inside, I mean. I would, uh, my immediate reaction is to say yes, name and shame. Um, but I, I just want to preface that also with mm-hmm. the fact that gender-based violence and family violence within the West and within Muslim communities is rife. So I'm, I'm involved with the Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights okay. back in Australia. And the biggest issue on the table with our organisation, which has been around for 25 years, is family mm-hmm. violence. So violence against women, vi- family violence against women and children has long been happening. And I think it's, not, it's, it's a manifestation of how it happens across the Muslim world and the world in general. So violence against women must end. Uh, just before we get to the next question, uh, what is your thoughts on that, Fatima? On gender-based violence? Yeah, and, uh, and the I Me think, Too movement, of course, as I well. I think often, um, because of conversations that I've had with people, they often assume that gender-based violence has got to do with um, race. And it does in a way, but it's because of the oppression that people of color have faced at the hands of colonial powers and at the hands of white men particularly. So gender-based violence, you'll often hear people say, oh, you know, this is a show of power. Yes, it is a show of power because they have been disempowered by patriarchal white men and patriarchal societies and colonial societies. So 
I think as Muslims, we have to be very open about gender-based violence. We have to have a dialogue between men and women. We have to talk about things like racism, things like patriarchy, things like misogyny, because all these issues intersect. And that's where this powerlessness comes from, and that's where this show of power to also comes from. So I think a dialogue needs to be opened. Certainly, and we're definitely committed to that. Let's get to the last question from Wada, and then we'll talk to um, of course, this name's children that are also in, in the studio. Uh, as you were saying, we need to speak about it, but how do we overcome that? Because in our community, generally the Muslim community worldwide, there's this perception that we have to sort of like stand it out, pray, it's going to get better. But we're not willing to and sometimes when we do unfortunately there are leaders that would say go back speak to him it's going to get better but in the end women end up being murdered they have to when they go to their maternal homes they send back to their husbands so in a way it's easy to speak out but in our community women are so afraid so how do you overcome that because as muslims we are told that we need to speak out for justice but when it comes to abuse, we can't speak about it. If we need to share the biryani, we all can. Yeah. The recipe is available, but not such serious topics. So how do we overcome? Well, I think that both yourself and Fatima are examples of how things are changing. I mean, the fact that you can be young, educated, articulate women and, and name these issues out would hopefully encourage listeners to think that what's, what I'm going through isn't okay. And that actually it's happening globally and actually maybe if this Me Too movement is an impetus for change mm -hmm. then let's embrace that so I think that kind of change in mindset is generational certainly when I was your age uh -huh. nobody was talking about it like mm. this so I'm hoping things can only get better and you know inshallah by the time my kids are my age um, they will actually be saying yeah we, I remember when this used to be a taboo topic now we have a zero tolerance approach to violence against women that's our goal let's talk to Hamza one of your sons is 15 year old let's get your perspective what are some the lessons that you've learned from your, from your mother over the years and of course she's just referenced you in the future um, do you hope that what she does now will you know be will be successful uh, yeah probably I reckon yeah absolutely and uh, talk to us about some of your um, thoughts about you know the main issues that are f facing young people today in Australia uh, you know a lot of people are racist so just gotta watch out yeah absolutely um, and and the use of social media is very important, right? I mean, you're on Instagram. Uh, perhaps you can uh, share your, your handle and, and tell us about how, you know, um, social media can be used as well. Um, yeah, uh, well... Tameya, do you want to come ask. in? Okay. <laughs> okay, well, um, perhaps Iman, do you want to come in? Yes. Okay, <laughs> everyone's a bit nervous. But um, I think definitely you can see um, uh, in the eyes of, of, of Tasneem's children, they are definitely motivated by that. Um, and just in conclusion, uh, let's get your final comment and uh, just uh, your final message to the listeners of, um, of what you represent, what you want our society to look like in, in the near future and, and, and long term. I would like to see a society where decision makers and stakeholders are represented, um, I guess, how can I put this most effectively, where the quota of representation of the decision makers and stakeholders in a community represent the breakdown of that community. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in Australia we have one in three or one in two Australians who are born either overseas or have a family member born overseas. 
We are a very diverse community yep. in our makeup, mm -hmm. but you don't see that diversity reflected when you look at the working space of, of a corporate organization or a media organization. And these are really important, or government. And I think until we actually can see that representation filtered through at those really critical levels where the futures of are shaped of a community, whether it's how we progress economically or environmentally or politically or socially, we're not going to see changes on the ground manifest. It's kind of utopic, I know, mm -hmm. but if you'd like to see, if you if you were to ask me, where would I like to see us end up? It's that. Absolutely, and you're listening to Tasneem Chopra, an internationally acclaimed cross-cultural consultant. Of course, she delivers workshops, and of course, we'd love her to come back. So, anyone who's interested in having her back, um, you can contact, um, of course, her on. You can you can go to her blog on Tasneem. T A S N E M dot C O M dot com dot A U, um, and you can you can contact her through that. Um, but thank you so much, Tasneem, uh, for coming in. Thank and, you for um, having me. It's been delight, and it's just been so exciting to actually have a conversation with you, millennials. And your, your <laughs> no, you've, you've I had some I had my doubts about you lot, but I'm actually <laughs> feeling pretty excited right about that. Your children are like, oh my god, what about <laughs> I us? You said that out loud, but I did. Yeah, and um, but, but that's it. And uh, uh, listeners, uh, please. Do stay tuned for After Maghrib. We'll continue the discussion on the voice of millennials.